You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 158 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Our Connection with the Elemental World. This is Lecture 6, translated by Simon Blacksland Delang, given in Dornach on the 22nd of November, 1914. From yesterday's lecture, you will have come to realize that our body has the particular form that it has because it represents a result of the collaboration between Luciferic and Aramonic powers. It is very important for our time to acquire a real knowledge of this interplay between the Luciferic and Aramonic powers, for only through this will humanity gradually be able to understand the forces that are at work behind the outward phantasmagoria of existence. We know that we need neither to hate Araman nor to fear Lucifer, because these powers are hostile influences in the world only where they are working outside their own territory. I spoke at some length about this in Munich last year. Some indications regarding this theme have also been given here. Our study yesterday of how the physical, spatial human body owes its form to the interaction of the Luciferic and Aramonic powers, has given us an indication of the most external aspects of the way in which Lucifer and Araman play their part in human life. We come somewhat nearer to the more intimate side of human life when we turn our attention from the physical body to the ether body. The ether body is, in a certain sense, the sculptor of the physical body. It is embedded within the etheric world as a whole, and as an etheric organism in a constant state of inner movement lies at the foundation of our physical organism. Now, as we have seen in the case of the physical body, luciferic and aramonic powers are also active within the etheric body. And it is important to emphasize that also, as an etheric being, man is intimately involved in the interplay between Luciferic and Aramonic forces. In order to give some indication of the matter at hand, we shall turn our attention to the three basic functions of man's being insofar as he is not a physical being, namely willing, feeling, and thinking. Of course, we do not perceive these qualities when we view man with respect to his physical body. Only inasmuch as the physical body manifests itself through a certain physiognomy, through particular gestures, and so forth, are we able to glimpse these inner qualities in the physical body itself. The ether body, which is an organism in constant movement, is, however, a living expression of man's thinking, feeling, and will. Orthodox science has certain problems with studying these three soul forces. If one surveys the views of various philosophers, one will see that there are some who emphasize the will, while others give priority to thinking, 
and there are yet others who regard feeling as the most important faculty. But none of these philosophers have much of an idea of how thinking, feeling, and will form a unity within man. This inability to have any real conception of the relationship between thinking, feeling, and will in the life of the human soul is a manifestation of the difficulties that people have in dealing with the whole question of man himself. I really do not know, say the philosophers, whether the human soul is oriented more toward will, feeling, or thinking. Is it inclined more toward one or the other? This is very much like admitting that one does not really any longer know what a human being is. Thus someone may say to me that he wants to bring a person to see me, and he brings me a five-year-old child and says, this is a human being. Then someone else comes along and also says that he wants to show me a human being, and he brings a person who is much bigger than the first and is, let us say, middle-aged. Finally, a third individual appears, wanting to show me a human being, and the person he brings has a wrinkled face and gray hair. And now I really no longer know what a human being is. I have been shown three different beings. Of course, they are all human beings, but one is very young, the next is somewhat older, and the third is really elderly. They are all quite different in appearance. But if one looks at all three together, one knows what a human being is. It is similar with willing, feeling, and thinking. The difference between them is essentially that whereas willing is the same soul activity as thinking, it is still very youthful or childlike in character. When willing grows older, it becomes feeling, and when it is really old, it is thinking. There is merely a difference in age between willing, feeling, and thinking. And what makes everything complicated is that the various ages associated with these soul activities live in our soul together. I have previously explained in, for example, my book titled The Threshold of the Spiritual World, that as soon as we leave the physical world, the law of transformation prevails rather than that of rigidity or fixity. Everything is in a state of constant change. What is old suddenly becomes young, what is young becomes old, and so on. Thus the three soul activities can manifest themselves in us simultaneously. Willing appears at once in its youthful form, in its older form, that is, as feeling, and also as the oldest form of willing, that is, as thinking. So the ages of life are intermingled, everything becomes fluid. This is how it is with man's ether body. But these changes do not simply come about out of themselves. Moreover, we are not generally aware in ordinary life of a unified soul activity. We are unable to bring this to consciousness. If we, nevertheless, because we need to observe the ether body as a single entity, as something whose nature is mobile and fluid, symbolically draw the ether body as a flowing stream, this stream of soul activity does not come to consciousness at all in ordinary life. But into this stream, into this constant movement of the ether body that flows onward with the passage of time, there enters first a luciferic and then an aramonic influence. 
This luciferic activity makes the will youthful. When our soul activity is pervaded by a luciferic influence, the result is will. When the luciferic influence in our soul activity is predominant, when Lucifer makes his forces an effective presence in our soul, then will is active within us. Lucifer has a rejuvenating influence upon the whole stream of our soul activity. When Araman, on the other hand, is the main influence upon our soul activity, it becomes old. And this is thinking. Thinking, having thoughts, is completely impossible in ordinary life unless Araman exerts his influence upon our etheric body. Insofar as it comes to expression in our ether body, our soul life cannot function without Araman and Lucifer. If Lucifer were to withdraw entirely from our etheric body, we would have no Luciferic fire for our will. If Araman were to withdraw entirely from our soul life, we would never be able to develop the coolness of thinking. In the middle, between these two, is a region where Lucifer and Araman are in conflict with one another. This is where they interpenetrate, where their influences are intertwined. This is the region of feeling. It is indeed the case that in the human ether body one can perceive both the light of Lucifer and the hardness of Araman. If one were to look at the human ether body as a whole, it would not, of course, appear as it is symbolically depicted in the drawing, but everything would be in a constant state of interpenetration, and there is a drawing. There are certain areas where the ether body appears to be opaque, as if there were traces of ice in it. Forms appear in the ether body that can be compared with patterns made by ice on window panes. These are hardened sections of the ether body where it becomes opaque, and they are the living legacy of the life of thought. This freezing of the ether body in certain places derives from Araman, who transmits his forces through thinking. There are other places in the ether body that seem to be full of light. They are transparent and have a radiant, gleaming quality. Here Lucifer sends his rays, his forces, and these are the centers of will in the ether body. And in the regions in between, where the ether body is in a state of perpetual activity, there is every now and then a hard place, which is then immediately encompassed and dissolved by rays of light. A perpetual oscillation between rigidification and dissolution. This is the expression of the activity of feeling in the ether body. Thus we can say that not only is the form of the physical body called forth by the interplay of luciferic and aramonic forces, alternately disturbing and creating balance, but the same forces are also active in the entire ether body. When the aramonic forces have the upper hand, this is an expression of thinking. When the luciferic forces are in the ascendant, this is an expression of willing. And when they are in mutual conflict, one can say that this is an expression of feeling. This is how luciferic and aramonic forces intermingle within our ether body. We human beings are, in a certain sense, the result of the influence of these forces. 
and are in an intermediate position between them. Now, we must be clearly aware that we are not always present with our full ego in what is going on here. Our earthly ego, which we have acquired only in the course of earth evolution, can only manifest its full activity and consciousness in the physical body. Not until the age of Jupiter will it be possible for the ego to manifest itself fully within the ether body, which means that man's actual ego is not directly involved in all that takes place in the ether body. If Aramonic and Luciferic forces had not intervened in the advancing flow of world evolution, man would have been a totally different being. For he would be able to have perceptions in his physical body, but the possibility of having thoughts would be denied to him. He has thoughts because Araman is able to acquire an influence upon his ether body. And similarly, he has will impulses because luciferic forces can influence his ether body. These forces are therefore necessary. We must therefore realize that as regards our earthly consciousness, we cannot enter fully into our ether body. Only in the physical body can we come to full ego consciousness. We cannot enter in this way into the ether body. Thus, as regards the ether body, we enter a world in which we are not fully present. Moreover, when Araman enters our ether body to form our thoughts, it is not our thoughts alone that are dwelling within it. And when Lucifer brings his formative forces into our ether body, it is not only our will impulses that are living within it. The same is also true of feelings, the realm where these two beings are in conflict. Insofar as Araman lives in our ether body, we are, through our ether body, immersed in the sphere of nature spirits, the elemental nature spirits, the spirits of earth, water, air, and fire. The only reason that we are unaware of this is that we cannot fully enter with our ego into our ether body. But it is always the case that our ether body is not only the bearer of the thoughts that we ourselves think, but it is also the receptacle of the influences of nature spirits. Thus, whenever someone has an encounter with these nature spirits, he is able to speak about an experience that he has had which he has not had in his ordinary ego consciousness. And it is indeed so that these nature spirits are encountered when something abnormal happens to a person, when his ether body is loosened from his physical body. How can something of this kind happen? The fact is that man's ether body is connected with the whole of the surrounding etheric world, thus also with the whole sphere of nature spirits. To exemplify this, let us suppose that someone is walking along a road in the daytime. When he is walking along a road with his ordinary consciousness, his ether body is residing properly in his physical body, and he perceives with his ego consciousness what is normally possible to perceive with such a consciousness. But suppose that he is walking along a path by night. If one is walking along a path at night, it is normally dark, and in many people this arouses sensations of horror and creepiness. Because of these feelings, one may be assailed by those distinctive sensations associated 
with the intervention of Lucifer, with the result that the etheric body is loosened from the physical body. And this etheric body, which has thus been loosened from the physical body, is enabled to enter into a relationship with the surrounding etheric world. Now let us suppose that the person concerned comes into the vicinity of a churchyard where ether bodies are still closely associated with the graves of people who have died. With his ether body being in this loosened state, it is possible that he may be able to apprehend something of the thoughts that are still residing in the ether bodies of these dead people. Suppose that someone has died recently who has incurred debts and has died with the thought that he has done so. This thought may still be present in the ether body of the person who has died. Of course, one does not perceive these thoughts in the ether body of another person if one's own ether body has not been loosened. But this is possible in the circumstances that I have described. Thus, the person in question may enter into a relationship with the ether body of the other person and perceive the thought, quote, I have incurred debts, close quote. And then, because such an experience strengthens the luciferic power within him, there awakens in him the feeling, quote, I must pay this debt, close quote. Such a person, therefore, experiences in his etheric body something that he would never experience in the physical body in normal life. This is not the sort of thing that is experienced every day in ordinary human life, and it therefore makes a considerable impression upon the consciousness of anyone who does. It calls forth the awareness that the person concerned knows, quote, I have experienced something that I did not experience in my body, nor could I have experienced it in my body, close quote. He feels that he is somewhere other than in his body. And this is an unfamiliar situation to be in. He then feels the urge to return to his body, and he longs for help to be able to do this. This sense of longing to return to one's body attracts certain elemental spirits or nature spirits, for whom this human feeling is a kind of food or nourishment. They are attracted because they are drawn by the feeling, quote, I long to return to my physical body, close quote, and they help people to find their way back to their physical bodies. If we are asleep in the ordinary way, we can easily find the way back. But when we are experiencing something of the kind that I have described, we find this difficult. We do not see the situation as we would perceive it in the physical body, but rather imaginatively, in pictures. Someone comes along in the guise of a shepherd, perhaps, but who is actually a nature spirit, and gives us this advice. Quote, go to a certain castle. I shall take you there on a cart. Close quote, or words in a similar vein. There is also something else that can be linked with such imaginative pictures. The body that one has left, and outside of which one had the experience in question, may appear to one as an enchanted castle from which one has to release someone when one returns to it. This is how this longing for the physical body and the help of the nature spirits can be imagined. Then one returns to the physical body, that is to say, one wakes up. 
People who have had such experiences then relate them because they have the feeling that they have in this way been in contact with the thoughts of someone who has died. They say to themselves, quote, This was a feeling of something that was not merely within me. It was not simply something that I had dreamed. It was a feeling that communicated to me something that was going on in the world outside. Close quote. This naturally comes to expression in pictures, but it corresponds to a process. I shall now share such a picture with you, where someone has related what he has experienced, and it has similarities with what I have just been telling you about. He describes it as follows, quote, When I had taken leave of the soldiers, I encountered three men on my path. They wanted to exhume a dead person because he owed them three marks. I was filled with compassion and settled the debt, so that the one who had died might rest in peace and not be disturbed in his grave. I continued on my journey. Then I was approached by a strange man with a pale face, who invited me to climb into a leaden carriage, and persuaded me to accompany him to a castle. In the castle there lived a princess, who, he explained, would only marry a man who came to her on a vehicle made of lead. He then turned to the coachman and said, Subquote, Drive as best you can toward the sunrise. Close, subquote. Then a shepherd appeared, who said, subquote, I am the Count of Ravensburg. Close, subquote. He ordered the coachman to drive faster. We arrived at a gate, and the sound of a tumult came to our ears. The gate was opened. The princess asked the man where he came from and how it had been possible for him to drive in company with the old man, and I noticed that the person who had led me there was a spirit. Then I entered in by the gate and took possession of the castle. Close quote. That is, he came back into his body. Here you find a similar experience to the one I described earlier. And what do we call it when something happens to someone who then goes on to tell others about it? It is a fairy tale. In this and in no other way have fairy tales arisen. Everything else that is said about the origin of fairy tales is sheer fantasy. All true fairy tales are a proof that one can have experiences outside the physical body if the ether body has been loosened in some way and a relationship is formed with the surrounding etheric world. This is one way in which someone can enter into a relationship with the outside world through his ether body. But there is another way in which this can happen. A relationship can also be established with the surrounding etheric world where an activity is being undertaken in a semi-conscious state, where the ego is present only to a certain degree. This is the case with speech. When we speak, we are not so fully conscious as we think we are. It is not at all true to say that speaking is something that belongs to us, that we have in our power. Etheric forces live in speech, and much of our speaking is unconscious. The ego does not fully penetrate our speech. When we speak, our ether body is connected with the surrounding etheric world. We learn to think as individuals, but this is not the case with speech. We are taught to speak through karma, 
which places us in a particular life situation. Whereas we enter into a relationship with nature spirits in abnormal conditions, when our ether body has been loosened, we find that inasmuch as we speak and are not merely thinking in silence, we are linked with the folk spirits. Thus the folk spirits come to dwell within our ether bodies, even though we are not conscious of this. We are just as unconscious in terms of our ego activity, of this aspect of our lives, as we are of what has been recounted to us in the form of a fairy tale. Now that we have seen how Lucifer and Araman make their interventions in man's ether body, we must also consider the way in which Luciferic and Aramanic forces play a part within the astral body. When we study the human astral body, we must necessarily turn our attention to the most prominent aspect of man's astral body in the way that it manifests itself on the earth. This is consciousness. In the physical body, form and force are the essential elements. In the ether body, movement and life. In the astral body, consciousness. However, we do not have only one state of consciousness in the human body, but two, ordinary waking consciousness and sleep. But the strange thing is that neither of these two states of consciousness is completely natural to us. A natural state of consciousness for us would be one that is between the two, in which we never actually live. If we were continually awake, we would hardly be able to develop properly as human beings through the various stages of life. Only because there is always something present in us that is less awake than we are during the day are we able to develop. Ask yourselves how much you think you develop as a result of what you experience and apprehend in ordinary life. For the most part, we use these experiences to satisfy our curiosity and need for sensation. It seldom happens that we set out with the intention of placing what we experience in our waking daily life in the service of our development. We are able to undergo development because something within us is continually asleep when we are awake during the day. I am not referring to times when people drop off to sleep, but when they are fully awake during the day, for it is then that something within them remains asleep. It is this factor that is responsible for the fact that we do not eternally remain a child, but are able to evolve. What we are conscious of through our astral body is the ordinary state of wakefulness. The effect of this state is, however, that we are too strongly awake. We give ourselves up too strongly to the outer world in our ordinary waking state. We become completely absorbed in it. Why is this? It is because waking consciousness is strongly under the influence and sovereignty of Araman. Waking consciousness equals Araman. It is quite different in the case of sleep consciousness. Here we are too little awake, and we are over-engaged in our own development, in ourselves. We are totally engrossed in ourselves, 
and to such an extent that all consciousness is extinguished. In sleep consciousness, Lucifer has the upper hand. Sleep consciousness equals Lucifer. Thus our relationship with our astral body is such that when we are awake, Araman has the upper hand over Lucifer, whereas when we are asleep, Lucifer has the upper hand over Araman. They are in equilibrium only when we are dreaming, for then they are fighting it out with one another and maintain a balance between their forces. The ideas that are evoked by Araman in day consciousness and which he causes to harden and crystallize are then dissolved through Lucifer's influence and made to disappear. Everything is transformed into pictures when Araman is not rigidifying them into fixed notions and they become flexible and mobile. Thus in the same way that in a pair of scales a state of equilibrium is achieved through the scales having equal weights on either side, with the result that what we have is not a state of rest, but a state of balance. So also in human life, we arrive in these circumstances not at a state of rest, but at one of equilibrium. And the two forces that keep the balance, each one of which at any particular time weighs heavier, are Lucifer and Araman. In waking consciousness, Araman's side sinks lower. In sleep consciousness, Lucifer's side. Only in the intermediate state, when we are dreaming, the scales rock to and fro, not in a state of rest, but delicately poised. There is, moreover, evidence of the effective presence in the world of Lucifer and Araman when we come to consider higher aspects of human life. Two notions or concepts play a large part in human life. One of these is the concept of duty, or, if understood from a religious point of view, that of commandments. We do also speak of duty in terms of a commandment. The other notion is that of rights. If you consider how the concepts of duty and rights, the right that a person has to one thing or another, play a part in human life, you will soon become aware that duty and rights are polar opposites, and that people's inclinations are such that they are sometimes directed more toward duty and at other times more toward rights. As you can see, we live at a time when there is a tendency to speak more about one's rights than about one's duties. All possible spheres of life make their claims. Thus, for example, we speak of workers' rights, the rights of women, and so on. Duty is the opposite concept to that of rights. Our age will be superseded by one where, because of the influence of the spiritual world conception emanating from anthroposophy, duties will come to play a larger part. And in the future, and I mean a fairly distant future, there will be movements where there will be less and less emphasis on the demand for rights and far more upon duty. People will then be more inclined to ask, what is my duty as a woman or as a man in this or that situation? Thus, an epoch where there will be an emphasis upon duty will supersede the epoch where the demand for rights holds sway. As already stated, rights and duty play their part in human life as polar opposite concepts. Now, 
One can make the observation that when a person inwardly ponders questions of duty, he looks outside himself. Kant has brought this to expression by portraying duty as a sublime goddess to whom man aspires. Quote, duty, you great and exalted name. You do not court popularity or curry favors, but demand subjection. Close quote. Man beholds duty, as it were, raining down its light from regions of the spiritual world. He experiences duty in a religious sense as an impulse deriving from the beings of the higher hierarchies. And when he submits himself to duty, he goes out of himself as he feels this sense of duty, an aspiration which leads him to reach out beyond his ordinary self. But this reaching out beyond his ordinary self, this aspiration toward spiritualization, would lead man into a situation where he would lose the ground from under his feet, were he to give himself up wholly to this tendency. He would lose his sense of gravity if he were always only wanting to go out from himself. He must therefore try in submitting himself to duty to discover some means within himself of maintaining his sense of gravity. Schiller had a beautiful way of expressing this when he said that man has the most appropriate relationship to duty when he learns at the same time to love duty. There is much to be said for this idea. When someone speaks of learning to love duty, he is no longer merely submitting himself to it, but he rises up out of himself and takes with him the love with which he otherwise loves only himself. He extracts the love that lives in his body and was egotism and loves duty. So long as it is self-love, it is a luciferic force. But when a person takes this self-love out of himself and loves duty in the way that he otherwise loves only himself, he redeems Lucifer. He draws him out into the realm of duty and, so to speak, gives Lucifer a justified existence in the enactment and a feeling for the impulse of duty. If, on the other hand, he is unable to do this, if he cannot draw forth love from himself and offer it to duty, he continues only to love himself. If he is unable to love duty, he is obliged to submit himself to it and becomes its slave. And although he is devoted to doing his duty, his obedience to it makes him dried up and hardened. He becomes cold and uninspired. He develops an aramonic hardness despite following the commands of duty. You see how duty stands in the middle between these two beings. If we submit ourselves to it, it destroys our freedom. We become the slaves of duty, because Araman from the one side approaches duty with his own impulses. But if we ourselves offer up to duty the power of our self-love as a sacrifice, thus bringing to it a luciferic warmth in the form of love, the consequence will be that by establishing a state of balance between Lucifer and Araman, we find an appropriate relationship to duty. Thus, through a moral deed, we achieve a state of equilibrium between Lucifer and Araman. Araman, from his spiritual domain, causes us to have to submit to duty, with the result that it takes away our freedom. 
But then, out of our own organism, we bring him love. We bring him ourselves. And in this way we establish the right relationship to duty through the battle between Lucifer and Araman. Thus we are, in a certain sense, also the redeemers of Lucifer. When we begin to be able to love the tasks that constitute our duty, the moment has arrived when we contribute to the redemption of the Luciferic powers, when we lead forth the Luciferic forces, which are otherwise under the enchantment of our self-love, for the battle with Araman. In this way we redeem Lucifer from his spell of self-love. We set him free when we learn to love our duty. In his letters, titled On the Aesthetic Education of Man, Schiller has posed the same question. How does one go beyond enslavement to duty to a love of duty? He did not mention Lucifer and Araman because he did not think about this matter in cosmic terms. Nevertheless, these wonderful letters of Schiller on the aesthetic education of man are directly translatable into spiritual science. With rites, on the other hand, insofar as we assert them, we find an immediate link with Lucifer. A human individual does not need to love his rites, for he does so anyway, and it is perfectly natural that he should. There is a natural connection between Lucifer and rites in the feeling realm, in one's feeling about rites. Wherever rites are being asserted, Lucifer is present. Sometimes it is possible to see with absolute clarity how, when some rite or other is being propagated, Lucifer's power is being strongly invoked. Here it is a matter of creating a counterbalance, so that we, as it were, call upon Araman to form an opposite pole to Lucifer, who is aligned with the rite in question. We can achieve this by cultivating the opposite pole to love. Love is inner fire. Its opposite is calmness or composure, the acceptance of what comes to us through world karma, the understanding of what is happening to the world, thus calmness through understanding. As soon as we approach our rites with a calmness born of understanding, we summon Araman into the situation. It is harder to recognize him here. We release him from his purely outward existence. We invite him into ourselves and warm him through the love that is associated with rites. Composure has the coldness of Araman. By understanding what is in the world, we connect our warm, understanding love with the coldness outside in the world. Then we redeem Araman when we have a relationship of understanding toward what has happened when we do not merely demand our rights out of self-love, but understand what is going on in the world. This is the eternal battle between Lucifer and Araman in the world. On the one hand, man learns in a conservative way to understand circumstances as they are. He learns to understand them as they have arisen out of cosmic, karmic necessity. And the other aspect is that he feels in his heart the urge to make new conditions possible, the revolutionary stream. Lucifer lives in the revolutionary stream, Araman in the conservative stream. 
and in our life of rights we stand between these two opposite poles. Thus we see how rights and duty represent a state of equilibrium between Lucifer and Araman. We only learn to understand things such as this, how the human physical body, etheric body, and astral body function in our lives, how duty and rights manifest themselves in the relevant aspects of our lives, and how all these things relate to the world around us when we learn to recognize the involvement of spiritual powers and above all those spiritual powers that bring about the state of balance. Just as we are able to observe what lives in the world as it is under the influence of the spiritual powers that bring about balance, so does our moral life represent a confluence of polar opposites. Moreover, the whole realm of moral ethical life with its poles of rights and duty only becomes understandable when the interventions of Araman and Lucifer are taken into account. Similarly, the historical lives of human beings and historical events in general take their course in such a way that revolutionary and warlike, that is, Luciferic, movements alternate with conservative and peaceful, that is, Aramonic movements. What we see is a constant balancing interplay between Luciferic and Aramonic forces. We cannot understand the world unless we view it in terms of opposites. What comes toward us in the world is presented to us in opposites, in dualistic terms. In this connection, monarchism, if rightly understood and which has a dualistic quality, is fully justified. How monarchism has its rightful place also within spiritual monism is something that we shall have opportunities to speak about further in the future. I have endeavored to show you in these lectures how the world is the result of balancing influences. This is especially evident in artistic life. On this basis, we shall in subsequent lectures consider the arts and their development in the world and the part that various spiritual powers have played in the evolution of the artistic life of humanity. And that is the end of Lecture 6.